0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Hello, I'm Liam Proud and welcome to The Exchange from Reuters Breaking Views. Today, we're talking to the famed bio baron Guy Hands of Terra Firma. Guy's done about 50 billion euros worth of deals since 1994, spanning German property, the Nordic McDonald's franchises, and most notably the disastrous 2007 acquisition of music group EMI. We reflect on that deal, how the industry has changed since then, why buyout returns are likely to fall, and whether the sector can be a force for good in the world. Enjoy! Guy, thanks very much for being with us today. Thank you. So I think our listeners will um, know who you are, they'll be familiar with the firm, but they might not be aware of exactly what Terra Firma looks like these days. So could you kind of give us a quick overview? You know, how big is it? Whose money do you manage? What are the kind of companies in your portfolio at the moment? Yeah, I mean,
1: TerraFirma is today 50 people. Uh, What's different from it uh, today compared with back... 10, 12 years ago is 10 12 years ago we had about 260 investors uh, today in terms of active investors we're really down to about 20 and of those the cornerstone investor really is the is what I call the Hans family office uh, I went into private equity really to do my own investments and very much mm. to profit from them directly and I had one investor initially Namura and I invested Namura's money in, in partnership. And that was a great, great relationship. Uh, we then went on to do a t- traditional fund structure. And I, I came to the conclusion a few years ago, probably about two years ago, that actually the fund structure really didn't particularly suit me for two reasons. One is I actually have always enjoyed putting my own money to work more than anything else. And I wanted to better do that and really focus on that. Um, And secondly, I didn't really want to be traveling around pitching myself anymore. I sort of felt I'm old enough and ugly enough to stop pitching myself. And I wanted to really pitch deals if I saw deals, which I really wanted to do. So for the last two years, uh, we've been investing exclusively on a deal by deal
0: strategy. Uh, We actually started to do individual deals back in 2012. Sorry, just to confirm, what does that mean? A deal by deal strategy it means you're not you're not raising a big blind fund and then you know investing it over five years. It means you're sort of you're starting with an opportunity rather than starting with a, a fund of external money.
1: Absolutely. Um, I mean, ideally, what one would obviously want is a pledge fund uh, per deal, um, but that structure is quite difficult to do and to raise. And we decided that instead, uh, what we would do is wait until we have a particular deal and then go out to this this rough core of about 20 investors already active with us. Um, We talk to a much bigger group, but there's about 20 who
0: I'd say are are on our sort of almost friends and family list of people we would like to be doing deals with. And who are they? What what kind of institutions are we talking about here? Are these wealthy family offices or are they institutional investors? It's becoming
1: more uh, family offices than when we started. You know, when we started, I would say there were a lot of big institutions, um, and now it's mainly family family officers. And the reason for that is that while the deals we're intending to do can provide a lot of alpha, we're not big enough to provide a lot of beta. And mm-hmm. therefore, the, the big institutions who've got, you know, two or three billion a year to put to work, you know, we, we just don't, we can't move their dial unless they do one really large deal with us. Whereas the family officers, you know, They want to do less deals. They're not looking for the same form of diversification. They are looking more for alpha. And they also tend to have a a more flexible approach to timing as well. And, you know, over the years, I've found that you go into a deal thinking it's going to be a five-year deal. And then some deals, frankly, you should sell after two years. And other deals you should keep for 30 years. Hmm. And, uh, you you know, having that flexibility and being able to talk directly uh, to the people whose money it really is, is much easier than having to go through an investment committee um, of a pension fund, for example.
0: Got it. And, and which companies um, do you own at the moment? I mean, are there, are there any that our readers should be familiar with that, that you're spending your time? Which ones really absorb your time?
1: At this year, uh, the one which has really absorbed our time the most has been McDonald's. We own the Nordic franchise, um, so we're a development licensee. We have 435 restaurants there, and uh, it's been a very it's been a very challenging year. But it's also been actually for us a pretty successful year. We made a very very big bet right at the beginning. Uh, we decided we would stay open. Mm. We felt our customers deserved the option, and we felt we owed it to our customers. Our customers obviously are the most important thing to us, and so we did stay open uh, the first four weeks. Uh, it was horrendous uh we didn't get customers coming it was just ghastly we we're losing you know a lot of money our franchisees were losing a lot of money but then from week four onwards we suddenly started to see people coming and they didn't come to sit down in the restaurants but they came for drive through they came for takeaway and they came for delivery and um we've actually looks like we're going to have a very 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 good year i mean very good year compared with everybody else i mean you know not the year we were looking for but a year where we've we've more than survived it and we've gained market share um the customer service we've done has got higher ratings this year than in the past and that's in all four countries so huge pain for the first month Mm. um i really thought i was going to become the most unpopular man in the McDonald's network, because we, we, I was insisting that we stayed open, um, but actually, it's worked really, really well. And um, all credit to the franchisees and to their their crew; they've done an amazing, amazing job.
0: And how do you kind of step in beyond, you know, the companies that you own? How do you see the market at the moment? I mean, I think there was a period in spring when at least a lot of the the private equity people we speak to were seeing what was happening with stock markets and thinking you know, right, we've been sitting on all this dry powder for a really long time, waiting for value to appear. Here it is, we'll we'll get ready to go. And then this slightly unfortunate thing happened, right, where there was no financing available for for a month or so. And then by the time the financing came back, by the time the credit markets, um, you know, and you could get a CLO going again, suddenly uh, equity markets had recovered and everything looked even more expensive than before. Does that that describe what's happened this year? And, And does it follow that there's not much value out there at the moment when, when you're looking for opportunities.
1: I think it's very, very difficult, um, to give a simplistic answer to that. So I'm probably just going to give you sort of the answer, which I would, which I apologize if it sounds completely contradictory. Uh, yeah, there is extraordinary value. If you've got the liquidity to help people out of their problems. Right. Um, if you, if you can't do that, then there is reasonable value, but it's, mu- it's much more at the smaller end, and it's going to take uh, a substantial amount of time. The, the, re- the, the reason it's at the smaller end is because you know, the sort of liquidity we can give and support a company with you know, means we can't take on a real problem child of a, a, a big company. So, for example, a business which we know very, very well is aircraft leasing. Mm. and you know aircraft in any form at the moment aren't exactly um the hot topic
0: so an understatement i think
1: yeah but the leasing sector's got some really interesting opportunities in it but you need to have really quite substantial firepower and i think the reason it's got it is if you're running a big fund and the sort of money you need to put in is pretty large to be fair and particularly as i think you'd want to come to an agreement with the manufacturers as well i think your investors would look at you as if you're completely crazy yeah. and if you're small enough to be able to do it where the investors accept that you might have a slightly contrarian view you frankly don't have the money so we've been driven very much into smaller deals where the issue for us is the time that it would take to do what you know i call it a process of sod Uh, survival, optimization, develop. So the first thing is getting the company to survive. Then you optimize it, and then you develop it to the next phase. And the amount of capital you need for one of these large businesses for the survival phase, if you take a conservative view, which I think I would in the moment, current environment, is very large. So we've ended up looking at much, much smaller companies than we would normally look at. Um, And there is value there if you are willing to provide the money for the company to survive then you have a plan for optimization and then you know what you want to develop, develop in it but that's time consuming it's um mm. and, and you're not going to put to work huge sums up front you're going to be putting the money in over a period of time so it's i think if you go out there and you buy an oven ready company they're very expensive still um the Point is to buy something which isn't fully baked and has some hair on it you've probably got to do a bit of skinning first
0: got it when when you look at the some of the bigger deals that, that are being done i mean obviously we haven't seen so many huge deals since that since the crisis but there are a few big ones you know um towards the end of last year um, i think people would be interested in your perspective on those deals. I mean, just because, you know, I think that the 2007 EMI deal that, that you did, you know, fairly or not, I think for some people, was kind of synonymous with the kind of, you know, late cycle deal making. Do you, how, how do you assess what's going on in, in the sector at the moment, given what you just said about the, the difficulty of finding value in, in big deals? I mean, if you're a, a big fund manager... You have no choice, really, but to put money to work. You can't write, you know, a hundred small checks. It's, the, the economics don't work so well.
1: Yes, I mean, I mean, firstly, on EMI, I think it's unfortunate people see it as a l- late cycle deal. That's not the lesson to learn from it. The lesson to learn from it was the financing was just a mess, um, you know, for all sorts of reasons. The right. actual operations of the business worked wonderfully I mean we multiplied EBITDA by six fold in three years the problem was the financing was just um just a mess up not saying whose fault it was but it was a complete mess up you mean the 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 securitizing plan we didn't we didn't get the securitization done which which basically meant we you know we left people with five billion of debt which they didn't really want to have Hmm. I, I don't think that was our fault I don't think it was their fault I think it was just what happened in the markets at the time and once the financing was not working, there was no liquidity to get people out of it. Um, but the actual business, I think, was actually, yes, it was expensive relative to where it should have traded in the market. But it, it actually was, it would have been a very successful deal if we managed to ca- keep our business plan for seven years through. And if you had it today, you, know, you probably couldn't have a better collection of assets. And, and at, at the price we paid, you know, you, you'd have made huge times your money. So I don't think one should look at EMI in terms of that context, in terms of late deal. I think you do need to look at it in terms of bad financing, though. And I think that's the lesson which I would say. If you can lock your financing in, although you're paying a lot for the companies, your financing is even cheaper. And buying some of these bigger companies with decent financing um, is getting a lot of money spent at one time, you won't yeah you know, i don't see huge returns from them but i see returns which are still going to be a lot better than people putting their money into the stock market so and i see returns which will definitely beat inflation by more than 4%. Hmm. so whether there is the real value there that deserves to pay the sort of fees that private equity gets paid is another question but in terms of an investment strategy of putting money into the into the big boys and how they've done it you know I think they actually are executing what they've said they're executing and they're executing it well I mean I think Schwartzman you know frankly gives people what they sign up for mm-hmm. and you know if you've got a lot of money money to invest that's a good place to put it um it's not to me what I want to do it's not it's not exciting did I want to do that sort of thing 11 years ago probably yes but today you know I want to get up in the morning and really really feel that this is a deal I emotionally want to make the you know the, the, the success of it and make the changes that I do so I'm much more in a different part of the market now but if I was putting together a portfolio I'd definitely have a space for the big boys
0: so does it follow from what you said then that the industry as a whole isn't necessarily solving for the same thing that it was ten years ago it's not necessarily solving for you know 25 percent IRR, that there's more of a play for kind of, you know, I've got this enormous fund, um, I need to write a big ticket that I'm fairly secure is not going to, you know, destroy value. Um, is that is that a fair kind of assumption going forward? Because, I mean, it does seem like industry IRRs have, have been going down over the past decade, depending on which study you look at.
1: Uh, no, I think that's very, very true. Uh, I mean, what... The, 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 the strategy we had was to very much invest on what we saw as a risk-reward basis. Hmm. And when we looked at the deal-by-deal deal basis, we did really, really well. When we looked at it on, on, an, on a fund basis, our last fund was a disaster. And yes, I did have some investors who said, look, guy, we don't really care because we understand that that's going to happen because of the way you invest. And you know we try and put who co-invest equal amounts into every deal to try and balance it so emi was no bigger to us than tank and rast um mm-hmm. so you know we, we we get the swings and the roundabouts but most investors aren't doing it that way and they don't get the swings and the roundabouts and if and if you've got a big deal which goes wrong it you know wipes out a fund and it's very difficult for them with our strategy so it's one of the reasons, again, why I'm not sure the fund strategy was the right strategy for us. If we could do equal investing, it would be the right strategy. But you, you can't really do equal investing in a single fund. Not, not easily. Um, you can through selling down. And that was always the aim of EMI. So I think um, you're right. The returns will go down and have gone down. And they've gone down because there's vastly more to lose by doing a big, bad deal than to gain. Mm -hmm. Um, by going for a few extra basis points I mean doing a deal like EMI which you know on the publishing publishing side we thought would be an absolute enormous home run um, which it would have been but to get it we had to do the recording side um, isn't something that a large portfolio running Mm -hmm. private equity firm should do and you know frankly you know as someone whose background was trading I should have basically you know said no to the deal because it was too big for us unless we got the securitization done and um but and and what that's meant is that the people who run these asset management business as well understand that and follow that rule so they will give people you know returns which aren't exciting but are pretty good and Mm a lot of people will take that, and it's the right thing for a lot of people to take. Now, if you want to make 20 to 30%, don't expect to make it through a large private equity fund. It isn't going to happen today. I think you should be aiming at around 8%, uh, yeah. 8 to 10 your, your chance of you going above 10% is unlikely, and the only way it's going to happen is by the private equity firm borrowing against the commitments and effectively juicing their IRR by not pulling the money down until the last possible moment, and that, to be honest, is a little bit of. If it was a bank,
0: it wouldn't be allowed. But it's so a slightly phantom number when 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 you do sit that way, I guess. Yeah, Could but you... it, it
1: looks it, it looks good on the on yeah. the IRR production.
0: Yeah, and I, I mean, yeah, our listeners will be aware of all of the the pitfalls of of obsessing about IRR numbers too much. Um, but I think that's a really interesting answer you just gave. Could you talk a little bit about the kind of the private equity toolkit, the kind of you know the levers that you have to pull in order to get value out of companies. I think there's a kind of still outside of the industry of a very widespread assumption that the game is basically about finding an asset that can support a bunch of debt, um, and where the cash flow potential is is undervalued, and and, and you kind of realise it by stripping out costs. Um, that doesn't seem to me to apply to what a lot of the industry does these days. Um, Where do you find yourself, which levers do you find yourself pulling? I mean, one, you know, line, I think there's an element of spin to it, but one line that comes out of the industry is that they're much more focused on revenue growth than they used to be, and that generally you tend to, you know, not want to take margin out of a business. You want to keep it in the business to invest for growth. Does, does, Does any of that ring true to you? I think in reality, private equity has become not that
1: different to what a well-run governance board and a public company would be. Mm. The reality is you don't get a lot of well-run governance <laughs> boards and public companies. Uh, you tend to get, get it a lot more in private equity. And it's interesting, private equity has moved, it, it almost does now what classically a board was meant to do. Uh, It represents the shareholders directly. It holds management accountable. It it has some independence with regard to various committees um, and it signs off on the strategy and the, the yearly budget and it does it very, very well. I think some private equity firms go a little bit beyond that to more of the entrepreneurial or change side of that which boards traditionally don't do um i would say that you know terra firma does that a lot um as i always say to our management teams the good news is i care the bad news is i really really care and mm. it's true you know i don't want to have less than 10 percent of my money invested in any deal i haven't had less than 10 percent of the economics in any deal since you know i started working at, at Namura. You know, where I had 30% and you know the deals really are important to me so and I care about everyone um, you know some people would say I care too much about everyone and that's maybe got some truth to it and so what I'm doing is looking for how can I how can I influence that company to end up in a much better place than where they start and to do that I use pretty well every lever but the most difficult lever and to me, the one which has been the most successful and most important is re-examining the strategy and the vision for the company, and actually getting it to think about what is it really doing, what really matters, and how do we we do that? And you know, that was one of the things that we you know we did, just taking the McDonald's one. There's a very good <laughs> toolkit for McDonald's worldwide,
0: hmm.
1: and the problem was it wasn't being followed through in the Nordics in a consistent way. And our job very much in taking over the Nordics was to try and get some consistency across each of four markets, each of which by itself was very small, but together was a pretty decent-sized market with 435 restaurants. So we have to... One of the things, the vision we started with was to have a Nordic business, and it sounds very like an HSBC advert, a Nordic (laughs) Nordic business which could think... Nordically, but operate locally. Hmm. That combination of strategic direction, which can be thought about at a Nordic level, but then implementation of very much the local level um, was really, really important. And it's what enabled us to have a, a good year this year. But it's taken us four years to get that into the culture. And we had a uh, senior franchisee discussion yesterday and we, I mean, I actually sort of felt rather embarrassed, but we were actually thanked for the fact that, you know, for 20 years, this is something that has been said in the Nordics is gonna happen. And now actually people see it happening. The, The reality is it probably needed COVID for people to see it happening because then we had to make decisions at a Nordic level and we had to operate quickly at a local level. So, you know, it's a sort of strange thing that actually the HSBC slogan has been our sort of strategical change in the noise. And it's not easy to do something like that. It's, you know, it's taken a lot. You've got four very different countries with four very different personalities, with different geographies, different delivery. They like different things. I mean, the, the, you know, the Finns like more sauce on their burgers. They like what, what i describe as dirty burgers. You know, it's, it, <laughs> you like that sauce going down your mouth, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas I'm much more sedate in English. and. I don't like this sauce dripping on me. I I, I liked, you know, if I could, I'd use a knife and fork with my egg McMuffin (laughs) in the morning. So it's it's a different way of of looking at it and understanding those local differences and giving the people the empowerment locally to make some of those decisions and to do what the customer wants is really important. But then you need to have certain standards at a Nordic level.
0: What does that... Sorry to interrupt, but what what does that imply for... I mean, how do you how does that reflect on the kind of edge that private equity gives over being in public markets? Because you know the counter argument is, you know, public public boards um, you know do quite frequently manage to pull off strategic uh, restructurings and you know pick a new vision for the company. You know, there's there's no there's no reason why a, a public company CEO wouldn't be able to diagnose that Finns like more source than um, the rest of the nordics in their burgers do you know what i mean like what what, is the, what, is, what does your answer say about the value of private equity relative to public markets is there some kind of coordination problem with having these assets you know spread out with lots of different shareholders
1: i think there's a coordination problem with different shareholders there's an issue that you normally have to a lot of pay economic or emotional um to get there and public boards don't like the noise and to be fair big private equity investors don't like the noise either um you know and to be fair you know in my case the brand mcdonald's didn't want the noise mm. so we had to do it a little bit more gently than i normally would um but so we had to convince people of the advantages um get there and you know to some extent we had to give something before we could get people to sign up to the mantra i think the other thing is i would say i would be astonished if there is a public company out there which has 400 let's say we'll just go to the franchise level has 80 business partners which the 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 whole of the board has met with Mm. and where you know the chairman of the board speaks to them at least once a month and you know it's 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 that personal connection which is going back to my statement the good news is i care the bad news is i really care and you don't get public companies in fact it's almost something you don't want in a public company where one of the board members has 10 percent or more of the business you know we we spend a lot of time in public companies trying to it's actually quite interesting public companies almost have the reverse approach to alignment to private equity and what i find is alignment doesn't determine whether you make the right decision or the bad decision what alignment determines is how much you care about making the right decision You've still got to have the right processes in to make the right decision. You've still got to give yourself a cooling off time to think about, is this the right decision? You've still got to get lots of views in there,
0: mm. but
1: you you care about it enormously. And, you know, when I traded at Goldman Sachs and interviewed people for the trading desk, my number one question to them was, okay, what do you feel about, what do you do when you have a bad position? And I remember one guy who was interviewing for Solomon Brothers told me, you know, guy, look, I've got a, Huge position position. I'm allowed to take at Solomon Brothers. I can take a hundred million. You know, if I've got a bad position, yeah. You know, I go home, I, you know, you know, I have dinner with the wife, go to sleep, get up, you know, it's the next morning. I said, that's great. You know what I'm going to be doing when you've got a bad position? I said, no, I'm going to be sitting on the, on the toilet. I'm going to be <laughs> myself. And frankly, I don't like the idea that you're basically, I want fishing <laughs> as well. You know, I want you caring. And, and that's it. And my experience of management teams is that they know the board really cares if they know you're willing to take you know, the problem, you're willing to face it as well, you're willing to, to be there, they'll work more for you. So to me, the big thing that private equity has is the ability to really engage with people. And, I, and you know, I've learned a huge amount during my career and I wish I'd known it, frankly, 20 years ago. You know, I, in the, the last 11 years have been you know, the biggest learning period of my life, which is extraordinary to sort of reach 50 and, start, and really start learning. Um, But I'd love to. I I wish I had my knowledge today when I was 40. I would have been so much better. Um, But the main thing I've learned is that if you can't get. People to engage with you. They're not going to change their behaviors and you can be as clever as you like and you can have the best ideas in the world. But as I put it to my people, if you can't get the elephant to dance with a piece of cotton. Nothing's going to change because at the end of the day. There are 20,000 people in our restaurants and how they react to every customer determines how well we do. It's not me sitting in a board meeting with a plan. It's me influencing the 200 people who look after the 80 franchisees, who look after the the 20,000 crew members. And it's how you get that. And I think some boards get that right, but a lot of boards don't and the reason they don't this is a public company so the reason they don't is it's it's not that important to them what's right. important the, to them, the
0: director sits on four different boards of a you know FTSE 100 and
1: yeah yeah and he, what he doesn't want is a is a problem he doesn't yeah. want his name in the paper he wants to i mean to me the problem with being a public company board member is you are paid vastly too much if nothing happens and vastly too little if something happens. Mm. The whole payment structure is completely wrong to basically incentivize board members to make change or to do the right thing. It's mm. incentivized to do the next best thing because the best thing always is gonna involve some pain. You know, I don't believe there's gain without some pain. It's some, some it is gonna to have to be some movement and board members aren't incentivized for that. And then what happens is when something starts going wrong like we saw in the banking system, all of a sudden, there's no money which compensates for having your complete life destroyed by being on a public board of a big bank when things started to go wrong.
0: So what you're describing, in a way, is a, um, a massive governance advantage for, for private equity-owned firms. I wonder what that implies for ESG, Environment, Social and Governance, um, which is obviously a growing theme. I mean, I guess you could you could stack up an argument that says that, that means that private equity could more easily make a difference in this area than, than other sectors, right? Because you could more quickly make change without having to you know, broker some kind of consensus that, that ends up being a lowest common denominator deal between 20,000, 30,000 different shareholders.
1: I think that's 100% right. It very much depends on the personalities. Um, you know, I think i quite shocked uh people yesterday when i talked about delivery mechanism Mm. and i said it's just not acceptable um you know over the long term that the people who are driving these motorcycles around need to be properly looked after and paid and although it's not our responsibility because we use third parties we're still enabling those third parties to not treat their employees Mm. properly
0: you mean people do, do, ferrying bits of food and ingredient between restaurants, but it, it, it could be true for lots of different sectors, you know, basically. It's,
1: it's, it's the whole gig economy, yes, yeah. you're 100% right. I mean, I, you know, I was brought up in the dock strikes of the 60s, and yes, people look back and they say, well, you know, London went from being a major port to a minor port because it's silted up, and that's horrendous. I, and, and I don't dispute that, but the reality is what the dockers were striking for was what I think are reasonable workers' rights. I'd actually say they went as far as human rights. And the gig economy in a lot of areas has put us right back to the Dockers turning up and not knowing whether they are going to get any money that day and not having any health care and basically having, you know just hoping there's enough money on the table for their families. And we're basically back to that. You've got motorcyclists who, if they crash their motorcycle, you know...
0: That's it. No income until it's fixed and you can't necessarily afford a new one and, and there's no, yeah.
1: Yeah, and that to me isn't a good place in society. Now, I can make a difference in that and as long as my shareholders partners, because they are partners because we, there's not a lot of them so I can talk to them. As long as they see that as something from an ESG point of view they think is important, it's not an issue. One of our businesses asked me about slave labor and they said you know what is your view guy about moving our manufacturing to such and such a country we we can cut our costs quite a lot because at the moment we're, we're manufacturing in italy but i'm worried about whether the we really can ever get a guarantee that the people who have been employed are being properly treated and i said well if you don't think you can get a guarantee just don't move it and they said, yeah but we're paying 20 percent more i said fine we just have to, you know, I'm not, I just don't want to take that. I'm just not willing to do it. I do not want to look in the mirror and think that I'm knowingly allowing something bad to happen. And, and I think you can do that in a private equity business, as long as your investors know that's what you're doing. And it's not about saying we're only going to do ESG investments. It's about saying we're not going to do any investments which don't fulfill a level of ESG, which, which we can live with positively and feel good about because frankly, I don't want to get up in the morning and look in the mirror and feel bad. You know, I haven't got it Yeah, you know, Maybe. And, and again, I think learning that is, is, is a thing which you do learn. I mean, when you're in your 20s, you, you you have a very good moralistic view globally, but you're quite selfish personally. And I would say I was probably more moralistic globally right up into my 50s. But personally, I was you know, I was like most people. I was just really focusing on success and success is what really mattered. You go through a little bit of a failure and you realize that actually, There's a lot of other things which matter as much. And so I think that a lot of these guys who are running these companies can afford the ESG, but as a public company, you know, the first thing the board's going to ask is what does it cost? Mm. What is it going to mean to our numbers this year? You know, and yes, we want to give it, they they want to give it lip service, but they don't really want to pay for it. And it does short-term cost. Long term, I don't think it does cost. By the way, I think long term it's a benefit because you get a much more engaged um, workforce if they believe that's actually that they've got a mission to do something good. Um, I mean, we found that in in, in the Nordics. I mean, one of the things we do is we give library books for, for happy meals. We mm. give we produce, we give more books out in the Nordics than any other organisation, children's books, and you know we our happy meal doesn't have to have chips in it you can get carrots so we do a healthy happy meal with a learning book and you know that's to me doing something good in society and the the crew members love that and and i actually think it motivates them Um, we teach more immigrants english than anyone else we send more people to university we you know we do a lot of those things and I think they're about doing a good thing as a society. I also think they're incredibly motivating. And, if it, it, and if, it, 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 if it adds four weeks to how long an average crew member stays with us, because remember they're young, don't stay for that long. If it adds four weeks, it more than pays for itself. Mm. We can, we, I can make those decisions. So when, so when I have someone coming to me in McDonald's and saying, guy, we want to sponsor, sponsor a, a football league um, it's going to cost this. I, w- I I won't say yeah yeah you have the money. I'm going to say, run through what the benefits are, and what the costs are, and is and they'll come through it. And I say, is that the best thing we can do with that amount of money? And if you think it is, and it's going to have the biggest move for good, then do it. And then why shouldn't we be doing it in our other other stores? Okay, yeah, let's use our size for good, which is a you know a McDonald's thing. So I'm passionate about. How one does that, and I wouldn't have been there twenty years ago.
0: Really, wouldn't have. But how does that, that presents a, a problem, doesn't it? Because in a way, it means the way these companies end up being run is 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 down to the caprice of a few private equity managers, right? You know, imagine imagine you know, guy hands wakes up one day and suddenly your moral compass has, has completely changed. Um, there's, there's, there's no way of kind of guaranteeing basic standards across the private equity industry. Do you know what I mean? Or well, maybe there's a lot of managers that don't have the same outlook that you do on this stuff. Does that imply that there's a need for um, the LPs, the actual investors putting money into funds to have some kind of coordination on this in, in order for private equity as a whole to, you know, to, to, to be compliant with, with, with what it claims to be?
1: Yes. I mean, I would say there is actually. And I think that's the problem with that is it is it's a difficult type of due diligence. It's really, really difficult. Um, You know, one of the things we do when we interview people is we do a lot of psychometric testing on people. And, you know, one of the psychometric tests we do shows up efficacy. Um, It's not one we actually feed back to them, Um, but it's I mean, it's there in the test, but you've really got to know how to interpret to to spot it and you know most people come out with having pretty good ethics um but there's a percentage you don't and you've got to be very careful because you know however good you are you you are interviewing people you're going to make some mistakes you know and we do very extensive background checks and i would say one in one in three one in four people don't pass the test so don't pass the background checks and I don't know how many private equity firms once investors have said they're going to invest, actually do that level of of checks and then Mm. maybe don't invest for that reason. Um, My guess is a lot don't. Um, I'd I'd be
0: surprised if it was uniform.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, that, that the problem is you can't do it by you, you can set standards, obviously, and you can set some minimum standards. But they're always going to be the minimum. They, they come, you know, And what you're really looking for is people who take, who move the dial forward. And the people who move the dial forward, you can't tell through a traditional process. You can only really tell by getting very close to them. And you've got to have the same passion as theirs. And you, you know, I know that a large number of the people I speak to out there aren't going to have the same passion. And they're not going to believe it. They're going to think it's complete and totally... Hocus pocus, you know. Uh, yeah, I'll give you an example, and I'm using McDonald's a lot because it's you know, it's a business I spent the most on this year. Sure, yeah. But one of the important things to us is our trust score, and our trust score affects how people feel the burgers taste. It sounds
0: it sounds like it doesn't, but it really does. So sorry, just to clarify. So if, if people trust. The McDonald's brands in the Nordics. You're saying that that has an impact on how much, how well they enjoy your food. Correct.
1: It actually affects what they think the food tasted like.
0: Mm.
1: And it's, if you think about it yourself, if you go into a restaurant, and they're very very friendly, and they engage with you, and they bring you a steak which is vastly oversalted, you'll probably forgive them. Mm. But if they've been rude to you and unpleasant, you won't forgive them. And if you then have to write out what you thought of the food, the nice guys, you'll probably give a four two out of five. The unpleasant guys will get a two. And you won't go back to the unpleasant guys because you don't give them any ability to make a mistake. So, yeah, I always say, look, if you smile at me in a restaurant and you treat me nicely, you can probably pour water into my wine. And I'm going to forgive you. Um, if you're not nice, I'm going to find any excuse to say it was corks and send it back. Um, and it, you know, it's just the way I do it. I mean, in Paris, I've made a real skill of sending wine back to try and get some decent service out of people. Um, <laughs> you know, French waiters are notoriously rude in Paris, but um, I can be rude back. Um, so it's my little little game with French waiters. I shouldn't do it, it's childish, but I enjoy it. Um, but so what we, we do is we really do focus. Now, adverts in the Nordics are very different. They're, they're strange. I mean, you know, we have an advert um, which has someone taking um, the old straws and making them into a musical instrument.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So we get rid of using straws and it's making the point that we're now using paper, et and, and you And know, it's a strange way of making the point, but it's, you know, it's making a difference and it's, it's explaining why we're doing it for the environment. We have bird boxes we're putting on all our stalls you um, know, McDonald's bird boxes—they look like a McDonald's store, but it's a bird box. Um, we have more electric charging machines than any any petrol station company, anyone, uh, because our McDonald's, you know, have charging electric charging stations now. And these are all things which don't make any difference logically, but they make a huge difference to the trust view of the brand, and that trust affects it. So. I actually believe that ESG is really good for business, but it's not about just ticking the box. You know, it's not just about saying, well, we don't do any slavery. Uh, We make all our companies sign an anti-slavery thing. It's actually about, if you're gonna do it, do it properly, inspect it, make sure you know, don't just get them to agree. Because yeah, if someone's gonna do slavery or the equivalent of it, and I don't want, I'm not picking on Bangladesh, but in Bangladesh and a textile factory, they're not going to tick the box and say yes I'm doing it are they you know it's like asking someone who's committed fraud to sign oh yes I'm committing fraud it just doesn't happen that way yeah. so you've got to really believe it and be passionate about it and you've got to look at giving back something to that community and that will start to then you start to develop a relationship with the community where you can find out what's really happening
0: that sounds like a um, optimistic note to end on um, Guy thank you very much for your time it was a pleasure thank you That's our show for this week. Thanks to our fabulous producer, Freddie Joyner in New York. And our final thanks go to you, the listener, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Exchange and our sister show, Viewsroom on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Check us out every day on breakingviews.com. And don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.